This event is presented by Idea Public Schools, Educate Texas, and the El Paso Independent School District, and supported by UTEP Comcast, the Texas Association for the Gifted and Talented, the Texas Association of School Administrators, the Texas Association of School Boards, Raise Your Hand Texas, the Hatton W. Sumner's Foundation, the Meadows Foundation, the Burdine Johnson Foundation, and Southwest Airlines. Please join me in welcoming our distinguished panelists. So I want, to begin, I want to begin with a little bit of framing and a little bit of context and ask the superintendents to give us the demographic breakdowns of your district so we know what we're talking about. Uh, Mr. Cabrera, El Paso is a, uh, a heavily Latino majority city. Not surprisingly, the school district is itself, I believe, 80%? About 82%. About 82% Latino. Uh, the, the Anglo population is... In the school district? Eight to, eight to ten. Eight to ten. And your percentage of English language learners in the school district would be? About 27%. About 27%. Mr. Carranza, your uh, school district is actually a little bit more multi-ethnic, right? The, the, the largest percentage of your school district, not a majority, but a third is Asian. That's correct. This is San Francisco. Tell us about the breakdown demographically of your district. So we're about 15,000 students. Can you hear me? Here we go. Better. 58,000 students, we're about 32% Asian, uh, we're about 26% Latino or Hispanic, uh, we're only about 6% African American, and then just a whole bunch of other uh, different nationalities. Great, and your percentage of English language learners in the district? 27%. Uh, 27%. And the greatest majority of those 27% are recent immigrant Chinese Students. So a slightly different challenge than, oh. say, an El Paso or a Dallas might have. Correct. Dr. Hinojosa, you actually have the smallest Anglo <clears throat> student population of the three districts represented on stage. Less than 5% of DISD these days is Anglo. Oh my God. That's correct. Um, by the way, first of all, <clears throat> I'm so glad to be back in the great state of El Paso. So, uh, <laughs> yes, it is the great state. Exactly. I spent four great years here in the early <clears throat> 90s. and. It was when I was a baby superintendent, and I really love this community, and I, I love the way you've grown, and thank you. But first of all, yes, to our demographics, a lot of people don't know this because you see Dallas um, on TV with the big hair and stuff, but that's not how it really is. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> Dallas, the reality of Dallas, we have 160,000 students. We have 4.5% white students. We have 70.1% Latino students. We have... 86% economically disadvantaged, and we have, get ready for this, 42% English learners. And that has changed. When I was hired the first time in 2005, we had 80% economically disadvantaged and 30% English learners. H2O in a Hosa 2.0 comes back. <laughs> <laughs> He's got a he has a brand already. He's back three months. He has a brand. Ten years yeah. later, and it goes from 30% from English learners to 42% English learners. And, and San Antonio has 19% English learners. So people ask me, how does this happen? Have you seen Dallas? There are so many jobs that people move to the city. There are so many restaurants, hotels. The service industry right. is huge. So we'll talk more about and, that and, later. and, in fact, the growth of the suburbs has probably pushed a lot of people from the inner city out. And so the composition of the population no doubt has changed. Uh, Dr. Esquire, you were at one point the principal of a bilingual dual language school in Washington. So the, the population of students that you educated, the breakdown demographically would have been roughly what? Well, we had about 70,000 students in D.C. at that time and about 650 in the public school that I ran as the dual language person. 60% of my students, I remember, were all low socioeconomic level. Right. 40% were non. And because the school sits in the area of Sidwell Friends and NCS and St. Albans School, right. you know, a lot of the students that went to private schools would go to Oyster for their elementary years. Yeah. And then they'd go back to middle school and private schools because they value right. the language. I'm interested, Dr. Hinojosa, you mentioned economic disadvantage, so did Dr. Esquerdo. We often talk about the challenge for public school districts these days around race and ethnicity, but in fact, it's as much about economic disadvantage regardless of race, is it not? Absolutely. In fact, and it's also misleading because now the state of Texas is over 60% economically disadvantaged. But since I'm so poor, I grew up in the hood, and 
You know, we were so poor, we couldn't afford the O and the R. But some, there's a difference. There's a difference between poor and poor, and we were there. Yeah. And if you look at urban America, a lot of the kids, they don't make ec economically disadvantaged by do they qualify for free and reduced free and reduced lunch, right? But yeah. then, if you look much <clears throat> further below that yeah. number, there is high, high, high poverty in some of our dist in, in 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 the city. But even in the suburbs, there is high poverty, and, and right. the demographics are changing in the inner ring suburbs. And the challenge everywhere. is, just so we're clear, the challenge is, Dr. Hinojosa, of educating a population of students, regardless of race or ethnicity, that is economically disadvantaged, is a thing. That is a real challenge. Absolutely. Um, Mr. Carranza, you're the, the one who traveled the farthest to be here, so let me uh, be deferential to you and ask you first. Give us a sense of what the challenges you see are, what, what, what you believe the challenges are, of, of educating a population that is as demographically diverse as the one that is in your district? Well, I think that I absolutely agree that the economic disadvantage factor is huge, and we don't often pay attention to that. And I think one of the challenges that we all have is that our systems and structures are not set up to be equitable, right? We have, we have systems and structures that allocate resources based on formulas. Right. Uh, and those formulas aren't often equitably based. Right. We may send you to the Supreme Court to talk to them about that here in Texas. <laughs> this is an ongoing conversation, but we'll come back sure. to that. Right. Yeah. But I think that, you know, the definition of, of insanity is doing the same thing, expecting a different outcome. So if you don't pay attention to the equity needs of students, and when students are economically disadvantaged or language, they're English language learners, yep. you have to invest more resources to be able to give them the equitable education that they need. Right. Now, try selling that to a community like my community. Let me give you a statistic about San Francisco. So San Francisco, one of the wealthiest cities, we have an unemployment rate currently in San Francisco under 3%. Less than 3% unemployment rate. Right now, a 1,000 square foot apartment will cost you about $1.6 million. Very wealthy city. Yet, within San Francisco, we're 62% free and reduced lunch. But if you go beyond, just like what Dr. Hinojosa was talking about, if you go beyond that statistic, 80% of the residents of San Francisco do not have school-aged children. Of the 20% that do, 30% of them send their kids to private schools, the right. Sidwell Friends schools. Yep. So it's no wonder then that the children that we're educating in the public school systems are overwhelmingly children of color, yep. overwhelmingly children in poverty, and you can go to San Francisco and go to Chinatown, which is world-renowned, and you will never know this, but there are single-family residences, literally apartments, that will have three or four families living in that one little apartment with a right. little boilerplate. And they've got four or five kids going to school. That is abject poverty. So appearances, uh, uh, Mr. Kranz, are, are, are misleading. I'm interested, though, in the very specific thing you said about money, about resources. This is always maybe it's the very first conversation point that we have uh, that we have here uh, when we talk about public education and specifically hard to educate uh, uh, school districts or communities. Is money the answer? Is money the only thing? Is money a significant factor? That is a topic of enormous debate here and elsewhere. You say more resources may be necessary to educate a population of that sort. Absolutely, and I think you know people always say it's you, know, you can't throw money at the problem. This is my 26th year in, in, in education. For just one of those years, I wish we had thrown money at the problem because we've never thrown money at the problem. But the example that, I, uh, that is absolutely the truth yeah. is that in our school system, when we actually looked at the equity lens and allocation of resources, there is a sense that if you're giving more resources to a community that needs more resources, then you're somehow disadvantaging other communities. Right? It's a zero-sum game kind of conversation. Right. But I'll tell you this, that in parent meetings where I've gotten lambasted because we're taking, we're funding some communities that have very, very high <clears throat> rates of poverty. We have large numbers of English language learners. We have incredible challenges in those communities to those, those students. And we're funding them at an equitable level where parents have said, wait, you're taking the money from my school and giving it to them. I've said, here's my business card. I guarantee your child a space in that school. If the money's that important, right. I guarantee then you, can you your kid could follow the money. Absolutely, to the other, to the if it's that important. No right. one's ever taken me up right. on that offer. Uh, Mr. Mr. Cabrera, is, is, is money the biggest weapon in your arsenal if you're trying to educate a, a school district full of or a community full of a diverse students? You know, I do think, I certainly think that money is, is critical. And, and it, you know, by, by almost any measure, it costs more 
to educate our kids in some of these communities. Why? Why? But stop right there. Why is that? I think it's because you need additional supportive resources for them. And one of the challenges we're facing in school districts, and I think this is just a conversation in America, what is the role of a school in a poor community where many of the kids come from single-family homes, a lot of kids may be homeless or living in despair, may not be eating properly, may not be getting support. If you look at, you look at the lifespan of a child, 18 years, I think we heard this stat yesterday, 25% of their, their time is in school. Yet schools get the blame for anything that goes wrong with the child. So if in the first 18 years of a child's life, 25% is in, you know, we only get them 35 hours a week, right? Part of the money that I think is important for the resources, at least from the way I look at it and what we're doing at EPISD is, what are we doing with wraparound services? What else are we providing? In the last two years, we provided summer school for free for everyone. We didn't make it just for kids of poverty. First year, we had 4,000 kids. Last year, we had 10,000 kids. My job in 2017 is go to Ledge and tell them about this and help give us more money to stop the summer slide because guess who struggles the most with the summer slide? It's the kids of poverty, right? right. They're not, their parents are taking them vacation to Europe and to go experience other things. They're, they're at home. They're not learning. I think they don't have good family situations. They absolutely. don't have good homes or any homes necessarily to go home to. Education is right. a partnership. And, and right. part of the struggle we have with kids of poverty is how far do we stretch the dollars if we need to help this child more than the seven hours they are with us? And I, at least for me, when I see that in terms of adding money to you know, different areas of trying to make a difference, it's what are we doing to support these kids in and outside of the school day to make sure that they're successful when they're with us. You know, Dr. Espierto, the conversation at our legislature, at least, is there are school districts around the country and, and states around the country that spend more per student than we do in Texas. We're actually significantly below the national average in per student spending. And yet the results in the school districts that spend the most or the school or the states, pardon me, that spend the most don't necessarily correlate to the amount of spending. If it were simply that money translated into performance or results, you would see a correlation, but in fact there was no correlation. I think that money is absolutely critical. It's important, but just as critical or even more is going to be the instructional shifts that we make. Right. Paradigm shifts, the, the, the professional development that has to change, the yep. thinking outside of the box for instruction, not just more to do the same old, same role, but you really have to do a different kind of So, so, so curriculum policies, the approach to education, recruitment and training Absolutely. of teachers, Absolutely. recruitment and training of administrators, all of that pivots off of the, the, the particular student population, the breakdown of the student population. Absolutely, and, and we need to support programs that do work, such as dual language program where I was principal, because I'm yeah. listening to what all our panelists are saying, and I'm thinking socioeconomic level does mean that we need to support more when the resources are low. Right. However, that's not a reason for not doing well. And so you see some of these schools in San Francisco mm -hmm. that are doing a great job with dual language program in spite of the fact that they have very low socioeconomic levels and it's because you, 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 you close those barriers when you provide an equitable distribution of, of instructional shifts, professional development, staffing, budgeting, redistribution, rather than just have a GT program on the side, you really prepare the entire school to have those kinds of sets of skills to benefit all students because we do create those separations in schools and we need to really look at it holistically. That really lends itself to the, the, uh, the topic of leadership and principles. Right. Principles are key here. Absolutely. Do Dr. Hinojosa, from the time that you were superintendent previously to now, two things have happened. So from the mid-first decade of this century to now, two things have happened. First is the population of the state of Texas has grown precipitously. I think it was 20 million in 2000. It's 27 million today en route to being double that, 54 million in 2050. Wow. The second thing is that in the time that you were gone, from the job, the legislature, with a shortfall on its budget uh, uh, books, had to cut public education significantly. So the population has gone up, and they're still basically climbing out of the hole created by the cuts in, in 2011. Do you feel running one of the largest school districts in the state, second, lar a third largest city in the state in population right now, that you have enough money per student to do the job that you do? Well, um, it's not always about the money, and I'm never going to turn down any money. Uh, but there is what do you do with what you have right sometimes you have to redistribute what you have um, and I think the most expensive one that we're going to need help on is the is one of the biggest assistance but the return on investment is 18 15 years if we have a great early childhood education program if we have a we can get kids 
school ready, we have a much better chance of getting them college or career ready. That's very expensive. But the reality is, is that a lot of these kids in big urban America, we get them every day from everywhere. And, and the, the significant mobility of our students, uh, we can't just bank on early childhood being the panacea. We have to take the kids that we have right now, what are we doing with them? In Dallas, I'm very proud that we have, uh, when we started this in 2006, we now have 148 one-way dual language schools, and we have 27 two-way dual language uh, elementary schools. And that has survived me leaving the state and coming back. I was surprised. That's one of the things I didn't recognize. Can you explain again, for the benefit of people who may be here and don't know what you mean, or people on the live stream, what do you mean by one-way and two-way dual language schools? Great, great question. And, and we always have to ex explain this. And Yvonne Durant helped me uh, answer this question many times ago when I got press on this. Think about one-way is one group of students. Two-way is two groups of students. Mm -hmm. One-way are Latino kids who are learning English and Spanish, and they keep both academic and all kinds of language acquisition. So that's the one group. The two-way two is two groups. Could be African-Americans, could be whites, could be second-generation Latinos who don't know how to speak Spanish, and they are going to learn how to read and write Spanish. And so we have those opportunities it's great to see young African-American kids speaking in Spanish in our schools and white kids. It's just, that's what people can earn. It's a skill that you can acquire right. that makes you competitive. So, so you have to do both and. You can't just count on one can't strategy. Do, you can't do either yeah. or. Can, can, either can I stay with three? I want to ask uh, Mr. Carranza and Mr. Cabrera about dual language schools in their districts and their same, sort of same version of what you just talked about. But let me stay with uh, pre-K. Pre-K is a hot-button issue politically in this state. For a while, the state got out of the business, effectively, of putting money into pre-K. A lot of, of, of fanfare, pomp, and circumstance. We're going to put some money back into pre-K in the budget this last year. They didn't fund pre-K for everybody, and they only funded half-day pre-K. It was not actually the full, the full bore uh, pre-K. There'll be a fight again in the next session about we'll how there. much to... And I know you'll be there. Absolutely. And, there'll be a, and there'll be a fight about how much to allocate and in what fashion. But is pre-K more important in a Latino majority school district or in an African-American majority in an Anglo minority school district than it would be or would have been, say, 25 years ago? No doubt in my opinion. Talk about why that is. Well, because every student needs to have equal life's chance. And if you give them, a lot of our kids don't grow up with books. They don't grow up with literature. They're surviving on how to get from step A to step B. But if you have, we have even data in Dallas that even if our pre-K programs aren't very strong, our kids that have gone through our pre-K at third grade, they score two grade levels higher than kids that went to no pre-K. Mm -hmm. And then if we do our pre-K better, that's just going to keep ratcheting that up. Right. So I'm very convinced that, that there's no doubt that's where any new resources need to go help us. You know, you can either slay the alligators or you can drain the swamp. If you drain the swamp, you don't have to slay as many alligators, and pre-K right. can help you Now, I, 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 I saw earlier in the suit. I've that one. It was good. It was good. I'm still, I'm still back on we were so poor we couldn't afford the O and the R. I saw the superintendent of San Antonio ISD earlier today. He's here someplace. Pedro. Pedro's here someplace. Um, you know, San Antonio, Dr. Hinojosa, a couple of years ago, at the direction of the then mayor, now the HUD secretary, Julian Castro, put a ballot initiative before the voters where they would pass an eighth of a cent sale, I believe it was an eighth of a cent sales tax increase to fund full day pre-K for 20,000 plus four-year-olds. Is it going to become incumbent upon communities like Dallas to take responsibility for solving this problem themselves? We're used to the state solving all of our problems. We're moving away from a time when the state is either able to or inclined to solve these problems. We're going to have to do both. The state's going to have to help us, and we're going to have to do things on our own. One thing that I've learned coming back to Dallas is that we got so much help. We just passed a $1.6 billion bond, um, and the voters are 60. The average age of the voters was 68 years old, and they don't look like our kids. But at a 60% right. rate, they want us to be successful. And they didn't have kids in schools. And they don't have kids in schools, and they right. don't. And our, our families, 42% English learners, they can't. They're not eligible to vote. And in my culture, if you're eligible to vote, you don't register to vote. And if you register to vote, you don't vote. You don't vote, vote right. So other people have to help Correct. us. So Correct. I think we've got to do both. Right. Mr. Mr. Carranza, would you talk about the, the, what, you know, the, the equivalent of what Dr. Hinojosa talked about, the one-way and two-way dual language programs, schools that you're operating in San Francisco? Sure. So we're, we're the land of Lau versus Nichols. So if you think back about Lau versus Nichols, that's San Francisco. 
Um, so we have a wide uh, portfolio of dual language, uh, dual, uh, we have bilingual programs. Because we're still under a federal consent decree, the state of California has Prop 209, which outlawed bilingual education in California. California, go figure. Right. But we still offer bilingual ed because we're under a consent decree, so you know, take it up with the federal government. So in many respects, we're very different than other school districts in California. But, you know, one of the things I think is important, right? I'm from San Francisco, so here it goes. We cannot ignore the issue of race. And one of the things that's always absent in this conversation, we talk about money, we talk about pedagogy, that's all important. But you gotta talk about the issue of race. Because if you look at any school system and you look at who are the kids that are being advantaged, whether it's economically, whether it's socio-emotionally, it's not gonna be the kids of color. It's just not. And the way it plays out in San Francisco is that when we have our dual immersion programs, for us, it's overwhelmingly white parents wanting their kids to learn another language. And it's mostly Spanish language or Chinese-speaking students wanting to learn English in a similar classroom. But as we've actually done the research and we've actually done a, done a longitudinal study, what we found is that those white students are learning the second language at a greater, greater rate than the students of color are acquiring English. And that is because of what? That is because of issues of, of Dr. Esquerdo talked about it, the training, the pedagogy. Right. But it's also looking at the data and how you're implementing your programs and who's being advantaged and who's not being advantaged. Now, one of the things that we know for sure, and, and Mr. Cabrera talked about this, is that we know that not all homes are the same. And I don't buy into the notion that students that come from poverty have parents that care less about them. They're working two or three jobs just to keep the lights on, right? But we do know that students that come from impoverished homes don't get the same kind of literacy development. They don't get the same kind of experiential uh, experiences. They don't get to go to the zoo and to the park and to the library that other students do. So do we say that's just the way it is? Or do we say we're public education? So in a public education system, the system should then, from an equity perspective, make sure people get what they need to be able right. to reach we're, we're, we're creeping into the topic of our next panel, social and emotional learning, right? The, the, the degree, but which we'll talk about at some length. Chris Coxon will lead a conversation shortly on that. The, the fact is that schools have to be not just places where you get educated, but also they effectively serve as surrogate parents and families and homes to the point Absolutely. that Mr. Crosby can talk about the dual and uh, the one way and two way uh, dual language schools that you're operating here. I, uh, or programs I, that you're operating. Just real quick, I do want to have one, make a quick comment on pre-K, then I'll go to yes, that, sure. I, going back to the issue of money and where we can make a difference. I think that, you know, anybody that, that has lived in a middle-class neighborhood or, or has, you know, have neighbors and been around those folks, we know that those kids are getting some sort of private school, some sort of daycare, some sort of literacy. So when we're talking about equity, this is not black, brown, or white. This is about poverty. It really is, to me now, about poverty. That's a civil rights issue. You know, certainly we have a crisis with black and brown boys, and we're going to talk about that, I hope, in the next panel. That's a real big issue for us. We need to focus on our young males of color. But outside of that, focusing on poverty, this is a starter. So, so if we know that kids that are middle class and above are getting the literacy vocabulary at home and they're getting into some sort of daycare at three years old, and now with the helicopter parents, you know, it's even more than that. So when you, when you look at spending the money on pre-K, irrespective of, of, of the color of a kid's skin, just on kids of poverty, that's a great equalizer. That's a place to put money where I think it can make a difference, and that's why we need to go right. f fight that fight. And so when you hear Mike Morath, who'll be here in a few hours, say in his first two weeks on the job as Commissioner of Education, we need to leave the high performers alone, stay out of their way, focus on the low performers, he is doing a version of what you're ta or talking about, a version of what you're talking about. Absolutely, and he seems to be very focused on pre-K. I think it's something they spoke about in Dallas. So if, if he can do that and follow up on the, on the small house bill that was put together under Governor Abbott, or the, the bill that Abbott recently signed, I'm hoping that that could be a big focus. For All them. right, so talk about one-way and two-way dual language so, and, and your strategy within the district for that. You know, very. I think part of what we need to do in this country, I mean, we know we have an issue with English language learners. But, but the problem with it, in my, in my view, it's always been a race issue. It's been about the poor brown kids that are struggling learning English. What I love about two-way dual language, and that's going to be our big focus, we've got a community in El Paso that got behind it. We're going dual language across the entire district, and we're really trying to push two-way dual language. 
And, and because then I think what we need to do as a country and as a state, because this is important to us, is think about language acquisition and bilingualism, multilingualism as an economic fact. Nothing to do with race. It's economic development. It's building a stronger global workforce. I was able to live and work all over the world only because Spanish was our first language. I know, I don't know about Lena, but the three of us came to first grade not speaking English. And it's made a big difference in my life, the ability to speak multiple languages, I think started there. Well, as a practical reality, the population of the state of Texas is changing so quickly and so heavily in the direction of a Latino majority population that as a practical matter, it's going to be important for people to speak Spanish in the state as much as well, possible. Let me right? tell you, in one year, so we made this decision two years ago with a community. We went, uh, in terms of our two-way dual language, I think we had just a couple of hundred kids in 2011 that were doing that. We're all the way up to uh, 6,300 kids. That means the majority of monolingual English-speaking black and white kids are jumping into the dual language program. We're making this amazing transition in just two years where the majority of our classrooms in elementary were monolingual English, and now we're switching to where they're two-way dual language classrooms. That means that those parents understand that it's an economic issue, not right. just an issue. And are they jumping into those programs by choice, or are they being brought into those programs by you, and you're having to sell it back to the families? We are selling it, and they're jumping in by choice. And they're jumping in by choice. Yeah. Dr. Esquerdo, I mentioned that you're the lead investigator on this big federal grant to uh, look at the transformation of, of, uh, of, of strategies and tactics on English language learning. Can you give us a sense of what you are discovering in the course of this? What, what works? What are best practices? What can we take away from this for the benefit of people in the room? What does not work is ESL alone anymore. That is the least effective model that exists across the state. And that, unfortunately, is what is used the most in secondary. And that's where we need to rethink what we're doing. Right. Uh, our ELL population, because of weak models, because of inconsistent models of language development, have not reached a high proficiency of English are kind of stuck at intermediate level, yeah. and along the way they've incurred academic gaps. So right now what they need in middle school and in high school are all teachers. If I was in charge of the world, all teachers would have the tools where they know how to integrate English language development, right. literacy development, and content development together and make it a very rigorous curriculum, not watered down, yeah. so that students are motivated, interested, and engaged. They don't want to be ESL students. Right. ESL students don't want to be ESL students because of that. So we have a large population nationally, not just in Texas, this is nationally, that really needs this kind of right. rethinking. I, I'm movement. interested to hear you say, if I ran the world, we all would like to run the world. The, the, <laughs> the, 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 the fact is, just, just as I said, we're, we're at a time now where we're moving away from <clears throat> the public side of our of our world funding things and we have to go to alternate sources of funding. It is also the case that we're pushing a lot of that we're talk about at least pushing a lot of the decision making down to the local level to school districts yes. self-determination. Oh, Do you think there's one answer on this that would be applicable across the board Ooh. or is it really more of a district by district thing? Are you talking about the yeah. new movement? Well, I'm, you know, you're saying we've discovered what best, we, we think okay. we understand better what best practices are yeah. in this kind of thing. Does what works in Dallas necessarily work in San Francisco or work in El Paso? I think, yes, in terms of the framework yeah. that we need to address. I think right. we're going to have different populations in terms of the diversity that San Francisco has right now right. and the kind of population that Dallas has right now and, and us being on a borderland right. that have a lot of that. But the framework? should be the same. Right. Dr. Pianosa, you were in Atlanta. Atlanta is a very different city than Dallas. From a population, diverse, extraordinarily diverse, but diverse in a different way. Would the strategies that you employ in a city like Dallas necessarily translate to a city like Atlanta? Absolutely not. We had 18% Latinos in the district I was in. I was in land of milk and money. I mean honey. Uh, it was a middle class destination district. And out of the 18%, 9% were Brazilian, and they had a lot of money. So it was a whole different context. But for the ones who do have the population, it's better to go with best practice than not go with it. So every, every community is different. You have to know your community that you're in and serve them. But I think also as we start talking about how we get there, and we're talking about politics, and uh, politics makes for strange bedfellows. And sometimes when I'm so proud that Texas has never tried to make a, a bad issue of 
bilingual like Arizona and California and other places have done. And that's because the business community has helped us from time to time. And because whether it was dealing with the DREAM Act with kids, whether it was dealing with making sure that we had resources, because a lot of their employees have their kids in our schools. And for this great economy in Texas to run, we right. need people to work. And so sometimes the business community has stepped up in the face of even some pressure from the majority of their political party. They've done the right thing to make sure that we have an opportunity to be successful. And so we have to take advantage of those opportunities whenever they're This gets to Mr. Cabrera's point about how this is really an economic development issue, first, sure. first and foremost. Uh, Mr. Carranza, uh, Dr. Esquerdo helpfully transitioned my thinking to uh, teachers. Recruitment of teachers uh, and, the, and the guidance that administrators give teachers on how to approach the task of, of teaching these populations. How does a, a, a school district like yours, so diverse, approach this question of where you find, how you prepare, and how you retain the best teachers? It's a loaded question for us because in, in my city with the tech boom and the innovation boom, I can't afford to keep my teachers. So beginning teacher in San Francisco is going to make about $58,000 a year. Doesn't sound too bad when you consider that the average rent is about $3,500 a month. Right? right. So, and you're competing for science and math teachers uh, with the industry that'll pay them $170,000. So, how do you ever compete with, with that? So, for us, it really is a money issue. But for us in San Francisco, what we've done is we've required every teacher that comes into San Francisco's public schools to be B CLAD certified, which is bilingually certified in, in San Francisco. And people said, we're nuts. And we're San Francisco, we're a little nuts. But I'll tell you what, we've gotten the quality of teacher in our classrooms that we're actually now starting to move the agenda when it comes to English language learners, when it comes to dual language, when it comes to bilingual yeah. language. We have uh, currently, uh, we have the highest performing large urban school district in the state of California. And when you look at how our English language learner students perform over time, yeah. They not only catch up to their monolingual English-speaking peers, they actually surpass And you think this, and, and it, you, that your teacher re recruitment strategy and the things you require of your teachers, this is not an accident that those two things are It's not an accident. Side it, by side. It, it's critically important. Right. It's, it, and, you know, I'll, I will bet on teachers and teacher professional right. development and pedagogy any day of the week right. or any kind of silver bullet. Mr. Cabrera, is it harder to attract the kind of teachers that you need to solve your problem, the problem we're talking about today, in El Paso than it is, say, in San Francisco or Austin, the kind of cities that are so uh, hot right, you know, people want to live, the first thing that I want to go, I don't live there. Is it harder for you to attract the kind of people you need to a place like El Paso? You know, I, I think there's, there's two sides to that. I mean, certainly we're so isolated that, that we are, I think 80 plus percent of our teachers went to UTEP. I mean, that, that's just going right. to be the reality. You have the benefit of a good education preparation mm -hmm. curriculum Absolutely. here. But so, nonetheless, it's a different environment. Absolutely. So for right. us, we, we probably face it. You know, in these, these cities where you have a lot of people that are transient, that are maybe following their spouse to the city and, and their educators, I think they have a different challenge. And we, actually, what we're focusing on, and I'm very excited about this, UTEP wants to be a partner. And we have had multiple meetings with the University of Texas at El Paso to talk about the kind of teachers we want them to help us graduate. And, and that, that is a critical conversation I think you know KIPP schools did relay in New York putting together a master's where they're training their teachers yeah. and their administrators what we're really focusing on you know for, first of all you've got teachers that are already there so you've got to figure out what are we going to do to give them the tools and resources to be successful with the populations we're serving and then working with the University of Te uh, uh, UTEP with the Dean here sitting down with them saying okay let's backward design this this is the kind of teacher we want. Right. This is the outcome we're shooting yeah. for. Let's now work backwards from that. And, and I'll give you an example. I have asked them. I don't know if we can make this happen, but I told them, when it comes to secondary, I only want teachers to student teach where we have schools like the New Tech Network schools that are collaborative, problem you know, creative thinking environments where kids are learning how to build relationships while they're actually learning the academic content. And when it comes to teachers that want to work in the elementary school, we want them to train at our Early Child Development Center in Mesita, where it's a full dual language, very successful, nationally recognized. And we, you know, so we're trying to, to move the needle by making sure that we have our student teachers uh, that are coming through here only train at the best schools. And right. instead of doing it for three or four months, we'd like them to do it for a year or two. 
Yeah. And we'd like to grow our own teachers. So that's a strategy we're going to use here. Mr. Kronzer. If I can just add to that. But, you know, part of the strategy also is that while we're developing in our local context uh, what works for us, it's critically important that we as public systems also network and collaborate and share nationally because the issues that we're addressing in Texas, in the great state of Texas, uh, may be very particular to Texas, but they also have commonalities across the nation. And I'm really glad, for example, that we have here many of our colleagues from the Council of the Great City Schools, the Executive Director, Dr. Casserly, is here. We're meeting in El Paso. But think about this. The 68 largest urban school systems in America have formed a collaborative. We're in our 60th year. And we're taking on issues of race and, and pedagogy and effective, and effective teaching and policy. But think about who's part of that collaborative. Houston, Dallas, El Paso, San Antonio, Arlington, Austin, all school districts, Fort Worth, all school districts here in Texas that are sharing what you're doing with school districts as diverse as Cleveland and Kansas City and San Francisco and Los Angeles. So I think what's really important is that it's part of a movement to really pay attention to what's important. And yep. your local context will help inform the broader context as well. Um, we're going to go to questions from the audience in about a minute or two. And there's a microphone here in the front. I want to encourage people, don't be shy. This is not a shy audience. I want to ask you to get up and ask questions. Uh, I'm staring at Mr. Torkelson sitting right here. He conveniently positioned himself right in my line of sight. I do want to ask the relatively non-controversial question about choice and about charters and about vouchers and about the whole portfolio of issues that come up every other year in Texas and elsewhere in a legislative session. You know, uh, there are some who believe that, speaking to Dr. Hinojosa's reference to an any and all strategy earlier, that if we're going to truly confront the challenge of educating a fast-growing and dynamically changing population, we have to have an any and all strategy, which means we have to have robust, properly funded, su sufficiently supported traditional public schools. We have to have charters, as many options as possible in that realm. And there are some who believe we need to even consider some kind of scholarship program or outright voucher program to give parents in schools that are having a difficult time educating their kids to give them an opportunity to move out. There are a wide range of opinions in the state. This is a very controversial topic. Dr. Hinojosa, what do we do about this? Is this an any and all strategy in terms of choice? I'm sure glad he got that question. Yeah. Well, <laughs> me I, too. I, he, he seems pretty tough to me, so I thought I might ask him. Me that he, too, and I'm retirement age too. So, <laughs> so a couple of things. I think yeah. it depends. Choice is a sexy word, but you've got to redefine the word choice. If you talk to elected officials and people that run the states and stuff to their version of choice may be vouchers to move money to private entities. You talk to other people who are charter advocates, that's their definition of what choice means. Now, one thing I've learned, people ask me, how do you feel about charter schools? I said, I'm not a fan of, of charter schools. I'm a fan of great schools. Some charter schools are great, and I'm a fan of those. They're, they're not. I'm not their fan. So, but I know they're not going away. Republicans like them. Democrats like them. The money people like them. Some parents like them. So we have to learn how to work with them and coexist. But then you talk to traditional superintendents, and we have our version of choice, and that's public school choice, where we need to give our parents more opportunities because they're going to vote with their feet. And in Dallas, right. we've discovered that a lot of people have been voting with their feet, and we're starting to lose kids. And so that's going to have a cascading effect on our resources and our opportunities. So always, when people say choice, look through them to see which motive it is, and then you can ask the right questions, because that's how you know how to redirect the rest of your questions, depending on what paradigm and what they're trying to impose on you or really bring up to have right. a conversation. I'm going to make you go next. Oh. <laughs> yeah, get the lawyer on there. You know, I think that... Uh, you know, come, coming, spending time as a teacher and then working in the business sector, obviously I, I think competition makes us all better. I think that, just like Dr. Hinoa said, you got good and bad charter schools, like you have good and bad public schools. I, I, uh, we are trying hard. Our strategy at EPISD is to, to try to be, you know, we say that your zip code is not going to determine the quality of your education. Anywhere you live in the city, we're going to try to have the best possible schools that offer your children all the opportunity and specialization if they want that in their particular neighborhoods. So our answer to charter schools at EPISD is to try to be better than any charter school that, that, might, that is here 
or might want to come to town. And that's how we're going to approach it. They're not going away. You can't beat them and join. We're, we're open to even talking about some shared resources with, with some charters that might want to help us in some areas we're struggling. Look, th there's no magic bullet, but if somebody's getting some good results and you see what they're doing, it, it's a good idea to share with them. Now, now, when it comes to vouchers, I am not in support of that. I don't think, I think that would deplete our resources, already depleted resources horribly. I think that uh, that's not the appropriate use of public funds. Charter schools have to, you know, play like us in terms of, of the money they get, so that's more of a level playing field, but I, yep. but I certainly would not support vouchers. Mr. Carranza, is this as much of an issue in California as it is in Texas? Oh, my goodness, yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you could talk about religion and politics at a dinner meeting, but talk about charters, <laughs> yeah. you're, you're in for trouble. That's where it goes off the rails, huh? It does. And, and similarly, like what everyone mm -hmm. says, I think the conversation is the wrong conversation. It shouldn't be charter or an anti-charter. It should be good schools. Good schools versus and bad I am schools. And I am a fervent supporter of good schools. And I am a fervent opponent of bad, of bad schools. schools in any realm. In any, any realm. Dr. Esquerdo, quickly, have you discovered in the course of your work any best practices or any takeaways from researching what works and what doesn't work as it relates to expanding choice for parents? Right. And I'm thinking of the dual language campuses that have been around for at least 15 years and have sustained. It's yeah. easy to get started. That's the easier part. But the hard part is, is sustainability. And right. so going again with the definition that uh, Dr. Hinojosa said, with great, define great. Is it open to low socioeconomic students? Is it open to ELLs? Is it open to students that need additional academic support? Yeah. Then we're talking about choice. Got it. Let me just add one last thing. Yes, sir, and then we'll go to this question right here. Yes. And, and, and the issue that we have found in San Francisco around charters is that uh, we have certain charters in our city that made it a practice to not allow certain kids. They would say it's the lottery, right? So the English language learner kids, ooh, you just didn't get in. Well, isn't that ironic that every English language learner student didn't get in? Or students with disabilities. And you want to talk about segregation in America's public schools? Look at who gets identified as a special education student. Just look at your data. Because that is going to be a real bellwether as to this whole issue of access, equity, and yeah. opportunity. Okay, we're going to go to questions now. Tom, you had a question first. If you want to jump up there, you can go ahead. Or Okay. We're just wrestling up the microphone. Identify yourself yes. for the benefit of people in the room. Good morning. I'm Tom Torkelson. I'm founder and CEO of Idea Public Schools. I want to thank you all so much for being on the panel. If we could get 50 or 60 superintendents of y'all's quality leading the biggest 50 or 60 districts in America, I think we'd have about half of the education problem solved. So I really thank you all so much for being here. Your, your question. The, um, you know, in Dallas, you've got, you've got uplift education that's sending 100% of their low-income students off to college. In the Bay Area, you've got, and you authorize them, you've got the Bay Area schools that have four times the advanced placement success uh, on, 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 on their tests than is typical. And obviously, here in El Paso, we've got the up-and-coming El Paso Leadership Academy. Um, when you all are trying to drive change in your system, and you see these examples down the street where the results are just stratospherically different, uh, what do you and your teams do to try to replicate the practices that are leading to that success? Dr. Hinojosa, let me ask you to start. Yeah, I think we've, Dallas, we figured out how to replicate great ideas that charters have done in the system. We have, we have an all-boys high school, Barack Obama High School, where 100% of the kids are going to college and they come from all over the community so we have to take ideas that charters bring to us we have early college high we have a new tech high we've taken ideas that the charters have kind of launched and then we try to make them work into our system and so we do need to coexist but also don't be misled because you have to look at the numbers I gave this report to my board this this month about demographics we lost a thousand kindergartners this year but, and most of those went to charter schools, but how many high schools in America, we added 7% ninth graders, we added 8% uh, 10th graders, we added, where are these kids coming from? What, is, what does that tell you? What do you believe the... the well, my belief yeah, is that in some charter schools, if you're not college ready after 8th grade, you're going back to the public schools, <laughs> and you come back to the neighborhood schools. And so you have to look, you got to be smarter than a fifth grader. You have to look at all the numbers and look at all the data before you make decisions. So how in the world is Dallas adding high school kids, but we're losing kindergartners? Someone help me answer that question. So if they're doing the right thing, I'm a fan of them. 
If they're warehousing them till they can't, they know they're not going to be college ready. We get them back. That's not fair. Let's be fair, sir. Hello, I'm Jordan McGill. Uh, I'm a student at Coronado High School, a senior. And I love when the Coronado kids come out to these events. Thank you. Uh, I, I got to say, I don't know what they're, I don't know what they do at Coronado, what they put in the water at Coronado, but you kids are awesome. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm from We Fill in the Blank, and I, I know that uh, it tends to be very difficult for. Uh, um, districts to get extra funding to do education programs. So I wanted to pose the question, if you weren't given extra funding, uh, how would you plan the current funds you have in order to improve the education programs that restore equity to different socioeconomic level students? It's a great, it's a great math problem. So you now know that any efforts to get more money out of the legislature are futile. You're not going to get another dollar. You have to work with the money you've got right now. Could you re-architect or re-engineer, Mr. Cabrera, the resources you've got now to do the job that you need to do? Here's, here's what I think our biggest challenge is. The first thing that public schools do when they lose money is they cut the things that I think matter most, which are the uh, extracurricular activities, the fine arts. These are the things that help develop what we say. Some even after 2011, one school district in southeast Texas cut sports, right? Cut yeah, football. Yeah, absolutely. You know? That superintendent probably run out of the district on a rail, right? He went to Georgia. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you know, I heard a great Fort Worth superintendent yesterday shared in our meeting that, you know, the, the old three R's, reading, writing, arithmetic, should now be rigor, relevance, and relationships. So if we talk about relationships and the social, emotional, the emotional intelligence of these children, I think most people here that have had success isn't because they got a great grade in algebra or biology. It's because of their social and emotional skills, their emotional IQ, and the way they, they meet and deal with people, right? So we have to think about what, what I get scared of when we're talking about realigning resources not getting more is that all we want to talk about then is the academics, and that's it, nothing else. Sit in a row, do good on these tests, and we're going to help you get academically prepared. I think we need to be real careful if we're going to do this right, especially when we're talking about these kids that aren't getting the support at home. We need to be sure that we're not in any way impacting. And, you know, the ledge doesn't talk about this a lot, and we need to make that a conversation. What are we doing with fine arts? What are we doing with extracurricular? What are we doing with all these opportunities that we have to expose our children to grow in different ways that don't necessarily tie to their star scores? Yep. So for me, I guess the challenge would be that we would have to find a way to, to, to not cut those. They, they'd have to be off right. the table at EPISD and, and then figure out how we still get kids the academic rigor and content they need to, to meet the accountability standards and do well in the SAT and ACT to go to college. But that, that's, that's where I would lose a lot of sleep. So I, don't, I just don't want to lose those programs. We've done that before. A lot of districts have done it, and I think it's a, it's a big mistake to do that. But let's be real. Um, 85% of our money is in people, every one of us. Yeah. So right. if you're going to cut something, it's going to be cutting people. You can cut all the travel and band-aids and paper clips. That's not going to do anything. No. You're going to have to let people go. And and how, how's that going to work out for you? And so, yes, it, and then you got to let the right people go. And so do you know who the right people are? And so and some people, some superintendents like to beat up on teachers. I love teachers so much I married two of them. But see, I, I'm not in, I'm not in there. I, 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 I must say, I'm, I'm assuming non, not at the same time. Not at the same time. That's Utah. All right. But and I got to take him with me on the road. Yeah, he's good. <laughs> he's pretty good. Yeah. He's pretty good. All right, sir, uh, we're going to make this the last question, and, oh. uh, and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll call it after this. Sir. Hi. Uh, my name is Omadi Anad. I'm the founder and CEO of the El Paso Leadership Academy, a charter school here in El Paso. Yes. I do have a few questions. The first is statistics. So I appreciate the discussion of statistics. 30% of my kids are special education. When I hear parents tell me, that they chose our school because they were not being served in the community. It is discouraging to hear conversations about charter schools pushing out students in special education and ELL when parents are coming to me saying that they're not being served in the public school. Let me, let me ask so respectfully, what, what is your question? Yeah, there are two questions. The first question is, what statistical information are we using to chastise charter schools because anecdotal information is different from statistical information. And I often hear these anecdotes, and I don't hear the statistics. 
The second is we hear about pushing students out of charter schools. How many of your students are in alternative programs inside of your schools and alternative schools that are direct pipelines to jail? And how come that is never a conversation when we start talking about pushing students out of the traditional system? I'll, I'll let that go as a jump ball. Anybody want to take that? One or, one or the other? I'll, I'll let you take statistics, but I can tell you that at EPISD, and it's all about leadership, we are 100% we are focused on social and emotional learning, supporting our kids each and every, no matter how they come to us. So the, the new leadership at EPISD is no matter what happens to that child and the problems they're facing, Teachers need to remember there's a, a big social-emotional relationship. Kids don't want to learn from somebody they don't respect and love or think loves them. So if that's not how you feel at EPISD, then you need to go teach at another district. At EPISD, this is still about love and caring for young people, and you got to do that. I can assure you, whatever numbers we've had in the past, social-emotional discipline, we're going to be one of the best in the country when it comes to taking care of kids doing that right. So we are focused on that. At EPIC, but it is about leadership. I'm not saying everybody else is doing that, but that's a big focus for us. Mr. Carranza, you want to take the question of uh, well, the, you know, anecdotes to, versus data? Yeah, I'd have to look at the statistics, but it sounds like this would be one of the schools that I would say is a good school, right? We're going to support a good school. Um, what I will tell you is I could give you statistics in my school district of where the push-out is happening, not only in charters, but in our very own school district. And, you know, I get the privilege of doing a lot of hiring in my career. Yeah. And never once have I hired somebody and said, please come on in, sit down. I'm going to give you an assessment in English language arts and math. And based on how you do, that's who I'm going to hire. How many of you hire people that way? You don't. You want, you want to do an interview. You want people that can yeah. communicate, that are going to be team workers, people that can do creative projects, people that are going to work well with others. That's the social-emotional learning that we often don't talk about in schools. So we have to go beyond definition of what is a good school by just test scores. That's ridiculous. It's not just test scores. It's also how do people develop as people. So what I would say in terms of the anecdotes, you have to look at the data, but you have to be ready to face the data. And in my school district, we absolutely had a prison to, uh, school to prison pipeline. So what did we do? We absolutely went to the board. We have defined now what is allowable in terms of uh, behavior change, so we no longer suspend for willful defiance. We have restorative practices. Every one of my teachers, by 8,000 employees in San Francisco's public schools, have been trained on restorative practices. My board even practices restorative practices when they have a little argument, yeah. right? <laughs> who, get, who gets the talking stick, right? Uh, but it's really important. <laughs> A lot, of, a lot of use on that talking stick, I'm just telling you. Right. But, but it's important that we start changing the paradigm that the first option then is to push kids out. The first option is you chose to be a teacher, you chose to be an administrator. That if we believe that the best place is in the classroom, then how do we create a classroom that's, uh, that's going to nurture that kind of creativity? So again, you've got to look at the statistics and you've got to be really honest with yourself about what, what that actually means yeah. and then be willing to take a stand and change that. The other thing that I would say is that whether it's charter, whether it's traditional public, whatever it is, you know, the, the fact remains that kids could ostensibly never step foot in our campuses and get an education because they can access the information of the world at their fingertips. So what we do as educators is guide their creative inquiry. That's what we do. And many times as we're having these conversations about what will the schools look like, we're getting some really creative ideas from some of our charters in San Francisco that we're actually collaborating with them. And, and we're redesigning our high schools. We're redesigning our middle schools. We're creating different pathways. Right. That's the beauty of an integrated system. But we have to get away from drawing the line of demarcation and saying, well, you said this about me and I said this about you. Right. That doesn't work for us in the public policy. I'm going to choose to end on that kumbaya moment. How about that? Um, please join me in thanking our great panelists, Juan Cabrera, Richard Carranza, Michael Hinojosa, and Elena Izquierdo. Thank you for being here.